following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be straight, strengthened with power through his spirit in your, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. amen this is amen. the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Um, every Sunday afternoon, I get done with the gathering, preaching, and I'm just wiped. Like, something about preaching week in, week out just puts a toll on me emotionally, physically. I just get drained. Um, and I think I figured, I'm thinking about this, like, why is this? It's, I think it's because I get up here, and, and, and this part of the gathering, uh, the, the coming underneath the word of God together, meeting at the Lord's table is really the apex of our Sunday gatherings. Not because, not because I'm special, it's because we're coming underneath the word of God and say, listen, God, we're, we're submitting ourselves to you. We want to hear what you have for us in this word and, and knowing that the word of God never returns void. And I've been going at this and I think I've just kind of been doing it alone. Um, and the sense, in the sense of this, like, Preaching for you, as you sit back and you're, you're, you're listening to a sermon, preaching is not a passive thing. Preaching is very engaging. It's not, not just for me, because I'm not the only one who's working. It's something that we all kind of do together. It's a shared experience. And one of the things that happens, so as I'm testifying the word of God, you also have a responsibility. You have a job of testifying to. And so uh, one of the ways that you can do that is by engaging with me with amens, say heck yeah, or whatever you got to say in agreement. So w when Paul comes up to the end here, we just saw uh, what I was reading, he, he gives us big doxology, and he says amen. And he says, listen, I could use your help. Would you, would you go out of your comfort zone? And if you hear a piece of truth, something, something that hits, you know, give me an Amen. That would help me. That's you testifying. I'm testifying. It's a big thing we get to do together. Uh, and so I'm excited to open up this text. This is a great passage. Uh, I said this last week, one of my favorite texts uh, in all the scripture. And uh, we're going to take another pass at it. Let me pray uh, for you. You pray for me. Father God, we thank you for your kindness in giving us your word, that you have not abandoned us, you have not left us to kind of figure out life on our own, uh, but you have given us this word that not only instructs us with, with everything that we need for life and godliness, but it shows us who you are in a way that, that nothing else can communicate. See, we can look at creation, we can see, God, you're a mighty God who created all things. We can acknowledge that, that there's some sort of creator that has to have this power, but scripture gives us this unique insight into who you are. And so this morning, would you open that up to us this morning? Help us to see, unblock our eyes, soften our hearts, unstop our ears, that we may hear and see and embrace the reality of who you are, God. 
and what you would have for us this morning. I ask that you would help me to think clearly, to speak with precision, God, that my heart would be fully engaged and this, this morning this would be this wonderful participation in your spirit and in the word as we come to your scripture together. So deal mightily with us in, these, in this time, God. Would you have your way? Would you deepen our trust and our affections for you by the grace of Jesus? And it's in his beautiful and powerful name we pray. Amen. Hey, that was good. We're getting there. Okay. Um, We've been going through the book of Ephesians. If you're just joining us, uh, we, we tend to go, uh, we take a book of a Bible and we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through whole books of the Bible. Uh, we love doing it way, that way. It's kind of God's unique providence and how he speaks to us in, in various seasons. Sometimes we land, land on text that we wouldn't necessarily uh, be gravitated toward, uh, thinking about, hey, what's this text going to say about my life? God brings us to these special passages and has this timeliness to them. And, and we've been going through uh, the book of Ephesians, what I think is pound for pound, I mean, the book of Romans, it, okay, we'll say probably that's the best book of the Bible, if you can be so, uh, I don't know if, if that's sacrilegious to say that, but Romans is great, but pound for pound, okay, that's like 12, 13, actually 16 chapters in Romans, uh, pound for pound, the book of Ephesians is only six chapters, and I think it has some of the most de- de- dense, theologically profound uh, uh, exposés here from the Apostle Paul, and, and as we've gone through the book of Ephesians, we're closing out here on chapter three, coming to the end of it this week, and next week we're moving into the second half of the letter, and through these first three chapters, we have been exploring this idea. Paul has been showing us this idea, this concept, that in the gospel, we receive a completely new identity. He says in, in, to the Corinthians, he says, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. This gospel identity isn't just a minor tweak to your life. It's not just a little add-on to a little additional fact about you. It completely reorients, completely overhauls the entirety of who you are, how you see yourself, and how you think God sees you. He tells us in chapter 2 that you were dead in your trespasses and sin, and now God has made you alive, that you were once far from God, and now God has brought you near. You, you were once a, a stranger. You were an alien, and now God has adopted you into, your, into his family, and you are sons and daughters of the king, that you were once weak and helpless, and God has made you strong. And by the end of chapter 3, as he's unpacking all of these things, kind of forming our identity in the gospel, Paul is on his knees in prayer in this glorious doxology. That's that's what we come to right now. He says, for this reason, he's recounting everything that's happened so far, everything he's talked about in the gospel. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father. Doxology, worship, praise is just exuding from him. And as Paul hits his knees in prayer, it brings us to the topic of prayer. Like, we got to talk about this because prayer is one of the greatest gifts that God gives his people. It's one of the greatest things that we have as Christians. And and it's an invitation to, to talk with God, and it's an invitation to do it often. And Paul actually models this. Even in even in these first three chapters of Ephesians, this is the second time Paul is praying. It's something that we're invited to do and meant to do it often. Now, this isn't because God needs us to pray. Like, God, God's not looking for something to do. Like, without our prayers, he's kind of lost, right? Or, or we got to throw those prayers up to make sure God feels a little bit relevant. God doesn't need that. Jesus actually tells us that God knows what we need long before we even go to prayer with him. He doesn't need us to pray. We are the ones who need prayer. 
Because prayer does something in us and to us. Uh, Tim Keller talks about prayer being this conversation and encounter with God. It's, it's the opportunity for us to commune, to fellowship, right? And, and any good relationship, you, you have to have communion and you have to have conversation, right? Try having a marriage where it's like you don't, you don't talk to each other, right? You don't spend any time together. It's not going to go well. That's, that's going to be a very unhealthy marriage. Same thing with all kinds of relationships. God's inviting us into this encounter and conversation with him. And in fact, uh, Tim Keller wrote this great book on prayer, which if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's incredible. He says that prayer is our way of entering into the happiness of God himself. See, it does something for us. But I think that we make two big mistakes when it comes to prayer. Two big mistakes. I think all of us do it. The first mistake is we don't, <laughs> right? We just don't pray. We, we, we're, we get too busy or too distracted. We're on the go. There's even a sense of maybe I've tried it and I don't really enjoy it. It's kind of hard because there is a sense that, that prayer is work. It's not something that just, boom, clicks in place and then everybody's great at prayer. It kind of takes effort. It takes, it, it's an engaging thing. Just like preaching, it's not a passive engagement. It's, it's engaging. We have to, to lean into it. Sometimes we feel like it's a waste of time. We pray for one thing, and then it seems like God answers no. Or you might just feel like God didn't even listen. I think this is tragic. And all these things sort of like pile up and, and keep us from praying. And the thing that makes this tragic is because a stunted prayer life will stunt the rest of your life. A stunted prayer life, if you have an impaired prayer life, you will live an impaired life. Because all we think, do, and say trickles down from this relationship, from this conversation and encounter that we have with God. Now, the big reason, I think, as I'm, and I'm speculating here, and there's probably a bunch of other things here, but as I've been thinking about this, I think a big reason that we just don't pray is because we don't realize the incredible privilege that prayer is. We take it for granted. The fact that we have access to God, the creator and sustainer of the cosmos, that we have an invitation to approach him in his throne room, not only to approach him, but to ask him for the supernatural resources that we need for life. And so we just don't do it. We don't, we don't see what's available to us. And actually, this is what Paul is doing here at the, at the, the second half of chapter 3 and moving in, into chapter 3, verse 14. He models this for us. He shows us what this kind of prayer looks like, to go to God, to encounter him, to have this conversation and encounter, and to draw from his supernatural resources. In fact, he, he does that, but then he also does it for us. He's, he's praying for the people in Ephesus, and by extension, he's praying for people like us that come together underneath the word of God. And in chapter 3, verse 16, he, he asks that the Holy Spirit would strengthen us in our inner being. In verse 17, he prays that, that Jesus would dwell in you, that he would deepen your union, right? That's the encounter piece. That verse 18 says, to be anchored in the love of God. Verse 19, that we'd be satisfied in the love of God, that we would plumb the depths of God's love, that we get our, our measuring cord out, our measuring tape out, and measure the length and the breadth and the depth and the width of God's love for us. And not only that, as we see how massive the dimensions of God's love are for us, that we'd be satisfied in this love, to be filled with the fullness of God. Paul is praying for all of these things for us. Now, when you look at all of Paul's prayers, and, and it's just... 
It's really a remarkable thing to do. If you, if you ever get time, you know, Google uh, Paul's prayers, and he'll pull up this list of all the prayers that Paul prays in the New Testament. Fascinating. Um, as you study them, you'll see that Paul not one time prays for circumstances. Not one single time. And in fact, as Paul's praying this, he's sitting, 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 nope, sit it, seat it, golly darn. <laughs> he's in a jail cell. He's not praying to get out. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. He's praying for the church in Ephesus. What Paul prays for is not to change our circumstances, but God would give us what we need to make it through whatever circumstances come our way. See, that, that's, that's one of the unique features of Paul's prayers. Now, as Paul prays for those things, to be strengthened, to know the love, to, to enjoy the union that we have with Jesus, he's also, listen to this, Paul is also showing us that prayer is the means to get to those things. So prayer, prayer is where we request those things, but it's also, also the means in which God gives those things to us. He gives us strength. He gets us union to go deeper and deeper into that. And he, it's a place where he shows us his love. Prayer is the conduit to get what we're asking for. And the way that you tap into those supernatural resources that God has available to us is through prayer. Now, in a way, as Paul prays for these things, what he's really praying for is your prayer life. He's not just praying that you would get those things, but he would, that, that you would know how to go to God and ask for those things for yourself. Not just for yourself, but for other people too. He's praying for your prayer life so that you would pray. Now the second big mistake that we make when it comes to prayer, which, let me say this first. If you're praying, praise the Lord. But the second mistake that we make is that our prayers are just too small. They're too puny. They're, they're in perspective, insignificant. Now, I, one of the places where I kind of chuckle at this, it's terribly unfortunate, but it's also a little bit funny, um, is in missional community. Like, if you've been to missional community before, you know that we spend time before we get into our lesson um, praying, evident, like thanking God for evidences of grace, asking God for help in places where we need his strength, his help, his love, his mercy, right? We, we go to prayer together, and sometimes we find ourselves praying for a lot of circumstances. We find ourselves praying for a new job, that we pass the test, and one of my favorites is like praying for your neighbor's cousin's sick cat. And like, like that's, that's a real thing. Like that's happened before. Like we take these prayers that are so small and we bring them forward. Now, it's not that praying for those things is bad in itself. What's bad is that we tend to stop there. See, those things are nothing compared to what we could be asking God for. And I think the reason that Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 are in the Bible are to teach us how to pray God-sized prayers. Now, first, Paul opens up in verse 14, right, that first passage there. I preached on that last week. I'm not really going to go back and rehash all that. But in that first section, Paul is praying that we would know the vast dimensions of God's love, that we get to commune with him, right? That, that's the encounter. That's the that's the conversation. But then there's a second part here about asking God, going to God and petitioning for what only God can do and asking for him to do these big and epic things. 
verse 20 and 21, Paul shows us six traits. I want to show you six traits of God-sized prayers. And if you don't keep these traits in mind, these factors or these, um, I don't know, traits is the best word, these traits in mind that your prayers will probably end up being too small. You'll probably end up, you know, underutilizing God's resources. So if you would open your Bibles with me. I hope you brought Bibles. Last week I said, hey, y'all, bring your Bibles. Well, if you did, you can open your Bible. If not, there's a pew Bible in front of you. Otherwise, if you're lazy, that's going to be up on the screen. We're going to look at, um, we're going to look at, Ephesians 3, um, verses 20 and 21. That's really what we're, we're honing in on here. So read it here with me, if you will. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. That's crazy. Far more abundantly than all we ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to him be the glory. In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This brings us here to the first trait. He says, now to him who is able. The first trait of of praying God-sized prayers is know who you're talking to. See, I think one of the reasons why we don't pray these big God-sized prayers is that we just underestimate God's capabilities. Like we can't even have this imagination to, to like, oh, there's no, you know, that's too big, that's too lofty, that's, that's too grandiose. And we just simply, we think that because we don't know who we're talking to. Paul says, listen, now to the one who is able. Now, this is a really interesting phrase here, okay? Um, the, 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 when it says the one who is able, that, that in the Greek, that word is, oh, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but it's dynamia. That's pretty close. Dynami, that, that's the Greek word. And, and this is actually shares a root word of a word that we've seen several times before in reading through the first three chapters of Ephesians, and that's dynamos, the, the word of power. It's where we get the word dynamite, this, this explosive power. And Paul has pointed us to the explosive power, the, the epic might of God several times. And one of the most important parts is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, where he says, listen, according to the immeasurable greatness of God's power, to the working of his great might. He's he's pointing us to the reality that God is this mighty, this all-powerful, almighty, explosive God of power. And in fact, if you go back to verse 14, he ties this, this concept of power back to the idea of a creator, right? To be the creator of the cosmos, you have to have this certain caliber of power. And so when he says, now in, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, right? He's saying, I'm praying to the source of all life, the source, the creator of the cosmos and of all creation. See, Paul knows that God is this big, powerful, strong and mighty God. Not only that, but we get to call him Father. See, Paul, look, he's tying all kinds of different things together here in our, in our view of God. First, that he's mighty, he's the source, he's the creator, but then he brings us in this very personal dimension of God's being, that he's father. That he's, he's not a creator who, who winds up creation and sort of lets it go and then walks away. It's like, hope you figure it out. 
No, God is a God who's intimately involved with his creation. He's intimately involved with your life. In fact, he's so near, he's so involved that, that one of the names that we have for Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. To pray to the powerful Father and Creator makes Christian prayer unique from any other kind of prayer. Other gods are the spiritual equivalent of a magic eight ball. They're cold, they don't care, right? You could be going to magic eight ball with your deepest, most pressing concern. And the magic eight ball says, eh, maybe. Right, that, that's what these other gods, any, any other kind of prayer is like that. Not, not only are they impersonal, but they're unloving. Not only that, but they don't even have real power. Psalm 96 says that the false gods are useless. They're vain. That, that they can't do anything. You can pray to them all day long, but they don't have anything to contribute to your issues. In Psalm 115, it says this, they're idols... The false gods are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but don't speak, eyes but don't see. They have ears but don't hear, noses but don't smell. They have hands but don't feel, feet but don't walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Right? Look at this. Like, this is the difference of praying to the God of the Bible and any other kind of God or any other concept of a God. There's no power. They can't do anything about it. They've got mouths who can't speak. Like, what, what are they going to do? How are they going to lift you through your circumstances? But the God that Christians pray to is full of power and he's filled with love and it's pointed toward us. Paul just got done talking about this back in, in verse 17, 17 and 18 and 19. He talks about, he encourages us to plumb the depths of God's love, to go down on an exploration uh, endeavor, to find the depths of it. He's like, you can't find the depths. You can't find the end of it. It's too massive. The dimensions of God's love are too huge for you to find the end of. Not only that, but here he's, he's reminding us of God's unmatched power and might, that God, check this out, going back to, to verse 20, God is able to do far more abundantly then all we can ask or think. That's the kind of power our God has. I love the Bible because this is not a new theme in the Bible. All throughout the scriptures, time and time again, God's showing, so first creation, boom. You want to see some power? You know, we, you might be skilled. You could build a house. But you gotta have some raw materials to do it. You gotta have that lumber, you gotta have the drywall, you gotta have all the stuff that you need, the nails, screws, whatever. You gotta have raw. God created everything out of nothing. That's a kind of power. What about when God goes to Abraham and Sarah? Abraham and Sarah, they're old, like Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90. And God has made this, this promise listen, I'm gonna bless you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a heritage, I'm gonna make your offspring outnumber the stars in the sky. And what does Sarah do? Sarah laughs at God. Like, what are you talking about? I'm 90 years old. How are you going to give me a kid? I don't have a kid. And God said, watch this. It, is anything too big for me to do? Is anything too hard for me? What about, what about when God's delivering his people from Egypt? Back in the book of Exodus? At that time, 
the Egyptians were the strongest world power in the world. Huge. Mighty. Pharaoh was the most top-level leader. And the, the nation of, of Egypt was this powerful place, and God's little enclave of people are trying to get out of, out of their enslavement. God sends Moses. He says, hey, I'm, I'm going to use you. I'm going I'm to help. I'm gonna del- you're going to help me deliver my people out from underneath Pharaoh. God says, well, first, Moses doubts it. It's like, how are you going to use me? And then second, God says, listen, is my arm too short? Do you think I can't reach down and scoop my people up? Or if you go forward to uh, Jeremiah 32, God is restoring his wayward people to the promised land. See, God, God had given them the promised land, said, hey, if you keep my commandments, if you stay in my, in my will, my way, things will go well for you. But here they rebelled against God, yet God is working to preserve his people, and to, eventually they're going to get taken away from the promised land, but God says, listen, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to restore you to what is yours. Is it too hard for me? In fact, even you move into the New Testament with Luke 18. Jesus says, what's impossible for man is totally possible with God. There's nothing beyond God's capabilities. In fact, the gospel proves it. There's nothing God can't do in raising people from the dead. Not just Jesus, but all who cling to Jesus. You too will be raised with him. He defeats sin and death and then seats us with him in the heavenly places. See, this is the power of God on display. And time and time again, David and Goliath, right? What's that? God's power. Gideon with the 300 soldiers. What's that? God's power. See, God is showing his power throughout all of the scriptures. And when you start seeing God as the true God who he reveals himself as, you'll start praying like you're praying to this great, powerful, and mighty creator of the world. You'll start to pray big. See, when Paul says that God can do far more abundantly than what we ask or what we can even dream up, it's like he's saying, you should try God with your prayers. See see what he's capable of. Loft those big prayers up there. Ask big of God. John Newton, the guy who wrote uh, the hymn Amazing Grace, said this. He says, thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Now, the big prayers that we're talking about, these big petitions, we're not asking for a bigger house or a bigger raise. Like, those things are just too small. Like, praise God if he blesses you with that stuff. Like, praise God, that's great. But if that's what you're after, man, your prayers are just too small. In fact, there's nothing bigger than what Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Like, if you want to go to the biggest end of the most epic, gargantuan prayers that you can throw out to God, it's this. On earth as it is in heaven. There's nothing bigger. There's nothing more spectacular. There's nothing more impressive. See, this is the second trait of kingdom prayers. Or, well, I gave it away. Second trait of big prayers is that they're kingdom-oriented. See, we're asking God to do, bring his kingdom down to earth, set up his rule and his reign here that would be a place of peace and flourishing, joy and love. And as we ask this, listen, here's the promise. God can do far more abundantly than we ask or dream. So what that means is the kingdom of heaven, whatever you think the kingdom of heaven is like, 
Your assumptions, your dreams, your aspirations, they're still too small. That's how good the kingdom of heaven is. And, and Paul, he, he says, when he, this is sort of like a, he's kind of repeating himself when he uses the phrase far more abundantly. Like it, it's like hyperextending, using too many adjectives. But Paul's doing that on purpose. It's like the power of God is so great that it's like hyper, extraordinarily, massively gargantuan. And nothing's bigger than the kingdom of heaven coming here on earth. So what we're asking God to do when we're praying these kingdom prayers, this is, these are what kingdom prayers sound like. We're asking God to make dead men and women come alive. That people would be reborn, recreated in Christ Jesus. They would come alive and want to follow this loving Savior. Kingdom prayers are praying for baptisms. That when people come to know the real Jesus, they say, I want to, my whole life, I want to live in submission to you, Jesus. I want to follow you. And it starts with baptism. Kingdom prayers mean praying that the prodigal son, that wayward person, the person who sort of turned their back on God and Jesus would come back to know the real Jesus. That skeptics would be enlightened, that the lost would be found. These are kingdom prayers. Listen, that the healing that we long for, this this physical, emotional, psychological healing in this broken state that we're in, that we'd experience a fresh wave of that healing. That God would break the strongholds and patterns of sin in our lives. Listen, I don't know about you. I've got these nagging habitual sins that just keep up and keep pulling me in. I want to I move on that, from that. And I know you do too. That's what kingdom prayer is like. Lord, help me to be more like Jesus, to live into this identity that you have given me. That's a kingdom prayer. It's, it's less about what God does for me. Listen, kingdom prayers are less about what God does for me and more about what God does in me. That God would give us a hope, give us love and joy and peace, give us this buoyancy as we make it through this world, that we would listen to this, to know the love, the unknowable love of God. That marriages would be restored that we would see families worshiping Jesus, that our Bibles would be open at our dinner table, that MCs, missional communities, people from all different kinds of life, walks of life and and backgrounds and, and experiences would come together and love each other like family and be on mission together, that we would see broken relationships mended, that the darkness would be pushed back, that our city would be renewed, that churches would be planted. These are kingdom prayers. What we're asking for, guys, is revival. Anything less of asking God for revival to happen is a prayer that's just too small. And listen, while revival is this, it's this like grand sweep of things, because it's like not just a couple people, you know, coming to know Jesus. It's like this giant sweep, this wave, tidal wave of kingdom renewal happening. But listen, these things start with small, faithful acts, right? When marriages are functioning as God intended to. See, that, that, that's a small tidal wave that's building up. When people learn what it means to walk in faith and repentance as a lifestyle, 
That is a tidal wave of renewal that's building up. See, because it starts with small, it starts with the individuals, it starts with us, and then God in his grace brings more and more people until this wave washes over our city. This is what revival looks like. It's what what, uh, Isaiah prays for in in chapter 64 of of his uh, prophecy, that God would rend the heavens and come down, that he would shake out heaven, that it would simmer down to earth. Now, to pray these kind of prayers, like, I, there's a whole list of stuff that you can pray for, right? Jot those down. But, but there's also this invitation that we get for gospel imagination. For us to ask the question, what would it look like if Jesus got a hold of this? What, what would my missional community feel like if Jesus really was who he says we, he, we think he is? How... How would that shape my conversations with not yet believers? Right? What, what, would G, what, could, what could God do? See, that's, that's the gospel imagination. And real prayer, Dane Ortland says this, real prayer ignites at the intersection of belief and of longing. Belief that God has the power to do all that he says and a real longing to see it happen in our lifetime. That's real prayer. That's big prayer. Now, what makes these big prayers so big is that it requires God's power to make them come about. See, this is the third trait, that big prayers demand God's power, that that it has to be. The only explanation for these things coming about has to be traced back to the fact that God is powerful. If you can do your prayer request in your own power, too small. But if you're asking for stuff that can only happen, in verse 20, it talks about this, according to God's power, now you're on the verge of, of, of these big prayers. And it's interesting here because God, he says, listen, it's gonna be according to my power, and if you're a Christian, verse 20, check this out. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power, check this, at work within us. If you're a Christian, the power of God is already at work in you. Which means, as you pray these big prayers, you very well might be the means in which God brings about the answering of those prayers. You see that? The power of God, which is working, but it's working already in us, that God might deploy us to serve to that mission. And it's not because you're stellar, not because you're some sort of elite, all-star Christian. It's because God uses the weak to show his strength. He's been doing it for a long time. Did it with Moses, had a stutter. How's, how's a dude with a stutter gonna lead his people out of Egypt? Or Gideon, trimming back. He, he had a, a huge army, trimmed back to a smaller army. David and Goliath, the apostle Paul, like all these guys, God uses weakness to show his strength. Which means, if you feel weak, if you feel inadequate, good news. It's prime candidate for God to use his power through you. Yet, see, you might be involved in answering the prayer, but while you might be deployed in answering these prayers that we bring to God, it is not about you. This is the fifth trait of big prayers. Big prayers, and big prayers, our aim is always to see the glory of God. Check this out, verse 21 
I'll just read a little. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to who? To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. So here even this, that the glory of God is implanted in Christ Jesus and in the church. And so when God is working, it's not about us. He might use us, but it's ultimately about his glory. That he can show how spectacular and wonderful he is. Now, this is crazy because if he does far more abundantly, it means when we're asking God to do these big things, he goes even further than what we ask. There's even more glory. He's like, you thought that was as big as you could go? Watch this. He shows his power and his glory, and the spotlight lands on God's loving kindness and might, and the glory of God abounds. And what we pray for in in revival is that we would see more of the glory of God. Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the seas. That's what we want to see. Kingdom prayers want to see God's glory revealed. And the sixth and final trait of, of these big prayers that Paul invites us to pray is that they extend into eternity. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. See, when we're praying these big prayers, we're not just asking for the here and now. Like, yeah, we want, we want to ask God to do something special right now. I want to see revival happen in my lifetime. But we're also praying for generations. See, we're, we're, we're praying the long game. We're asking God to keep doing awesome deeds for our kids and our grandkids and their kids and their grandkids to carry on the legacy of faith which God has spurred up in his church. Now, I, it was kind of unexpected. This week I got a, a, a package from my grandma, an envelope, um, kind of big thing. And, uh, and with it came this note. It, it was this, it's a piece of, it's really old. It's a, a, a piece of wall decor. And it has this, I don't even know how old it is, but it's super old. But she, in her note, explains that this was a piece that her sister Agnes had and gave to her and my grandma wants to pass it on to me as a reminder of this heritage of the faith that we have together. Listen, we are praying that God would carry on the legacy of our faith, that the prayers that we pray would reach generations forward. Jonathan Edwards was known for praying even 10 generations out that God would, would deal mightily and gracefully with his own flock. That the, listen, the future gospel growth that we want to see comes by planting the seeds of prayer now. We want to see God do incredible things in our lifetime and far beyond. In fact, the reason, like, the reason why we're here right now is because somebody was praying these generational prayers for us. Somebody was. Like, if you come from a family of the faith, it's very likely your parents were praying for you. 
And if they came from a family of faith, their parents were probably praying for them. And even if you didn't come from a family of faith, people were praying for you. Now, it might be your family, it might be a friend, but certainly, listen to this, Paul has you in mind while he prays. Paul, like when he's talking about the generations, that Jesus would work throughout all generations forever, listen, he's got somewhere in his mind, he's got Sacred City Church here, that they would know, that they would ask these big prayers from God. Not only did, prayer, did, did Paul ha- have this sort of mentality of prayer, but Jesus did too. I want to take you to John chapter 17. This is where Jesus prays his, his, um, his high priestly prayer. I know I'm coming up on time, but this is, you want to talk about, prayer gives us a, an insight into like who we are at our core. Like when you strip everything back, this is who we are. Prayer reveal, has a way of revealing this. Chapter 17 of John, John's gospel gives us a window into the heart of Christ where Jesus, moments before his betrayal and arrest, is praying for you. I'm gonna read this. You can follow along with me. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. See, there's God's glory. Since you have given him authority, there's a power over all flesh to give eternal life, right? That's a big prayer. Eternal life to all who you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, that they know you, the only true God, right? Again, going back to the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given, gave me to do, and now... Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Again, glory. I have manifested your name. I've made your name known. I've made your glory known to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And I have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. Oof. I am praying for them. I am praying for the world. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have the joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the word, world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you, you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask, listen to this, I do not ask 
for these only, talking about his disciples, the 12, and, and those in that outer circle. But, those also, but for also those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be, even, uh, be one even as we are one in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father. Even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love, with you, the, the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That was long, but that's, that's the prayer. That's the insight into the heart of Christ, that he's praying for you. Not just, not just a little, a big prayer. Jesus was a champion of praying big prayers. He appeals to the power of God, speaking to the righteous, powerful Father. It's a kingdom-oriented request that we would be in the kingdom, that we belong not of the world but to the kingdom of God, that it would require the power of God to be at work to bring it about, and the aim would be God's glory over and over and over again. It's about the glory of God. In verse 20, he's praying for us. He's praying for the future generations of gospel advance. But check this out. Jesus didn't just pray for us. Jesus was part of the answer. He was the answer to God's big prayer. By the power of God working in him, Jesus goes to the cross, was nailed there, dies a sinner's death, and he overcomes sin, death of the grave. He's raised to new life, and everyone who comes and clings to him and trusts in him, they will receive this eternal life that God, that Jesus has come to give freely. And they will have, what do he say? I and you and you in one, and they would be with us, this union with God. Jesus prays big prayers. He, he, he is the answer to this big prayer, but he's also our, the basis for our confidence in going to God in prayer and asking big things. I don't, some of us dudes, I know dudes tend to do this. We just don't like asking for help. I got it, I got it under control. I don't need you. We have this sort of stubbornness about us. See, God invites us to sort of set that pride aside and come and ask ask these big prayers and have confidence as we ask because Hebrews 17, 25 tells us that it's through the blood of Jesus that we draw near. It's, it's not our own performance. It's not our own ability. It's not our capabilities that give us the ability to draw near to God. It's through Jesus that we draw near to God. Romans 8, 34 tells us that Jesus died and was raised and now he's seated in heaven and what's he doing right now? He's interceding with us. So as we take our prayers, Jesus is, is passing them through his filter, putting them in the ear of God so God would know our prayers. We have confidence that as we're asking this, God hears us. And this is why we can say amen, right? Let it be so. That's what amen means. Let it be. It's this, this positive affirmation of yes. This is it. Yes and amen. Let it be so. We do so with confidence. This is, this is an incredible opportunity that we have. Big prayers don't put God out. We're not putting God out when we come and ask big prayers. It puts God on display, so Christian, brothers and sisters, let us stop underutilizing God in prayer. 
Let's, let's, let's graduate from these small prayers. If you gotta pray for your sick cat, fine. But listen, let's move into, let's move into these big God-sized prayers and keep asking bigger and bigger. Jesus tells us in Matthew 17, ask and receive, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened. What kind of invitation? Such a good invitation. To pray bold, to pray big, to pray these God-sized prayers for kingdom advancement. And as we do this, as we continue petitioning God and saying, like, Lord, have your way with me, we're going to find that God can do far more abundantly than we can ask or imagine. As we come to the Lord's table today, this is a reminder of, of an answered prayer. Without Jesus, we were lost. We, were, we sang about it this morning. We were on the other side, the far side of the chasm, we're separated from, but here in this meal, Jesus brings us back to God, forgives our sins, gives us new life. This is a reminder of that answered prayer. And if you are in Jesus, that if you are a Christian, in fact, like you are, you're, you're a miracle. Like you're an answered prayer that God has dealt graciously, graciously with you and has saved you. And this is a reminder of that. And it also sort of fuels us to keep asking these big prayers. Before we come to the table, I wanna pray. I'm gonna ask God to do big things. And I just wanna give us a moment of silence that you can, you can go right now to the Father and make your petitions known. So like, what, what is it that you want to see God do in your life? Where, where do you need to see God break those chains? Who, who, who's on your wanted list? Like, people that you want to come to know Jesus to kind of change their life in the most profound way. What's your God-sized prayer? This is a chance for us to pray together. I'll close this in prayer, and then we'll come to the Lord's table. Father God, we come knowing that you are the almighty God. There's nothing you cannot do. All power and might and glory are yours, and you desire to make that glory known. Father, we ask, we're gonna take some time to take petitions to you right now. Would you do a big work in this church in our hearts, in our city. God, we bring our, our God-sized prayers to you now. Jesus, we thank you that right now you're interceding for us, that, that you're, you're stating our case before God. We ask that you would answer these prayers, that your grace would abound your glory would fill the earth as, as water covers the seas. It would be to your praise and your glory, and it's for our good we ask these. In Jesus' name, amen.